Welcome. Thank you all very much for coming to tonight's uh, lecture. I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm in the Economics Department here and also direct LSE 100. And it's a privilege to chair uh, this event. Lord Robert uh, Skidowski is a professor, as you probably know, and emeritus professor at Warwick University, professor of political economy. He's been at Warwick since 1978. Probably best known to many of you as the author of a very well-regarded three-volume biography of Maynard Keynes, which won numerous prizes, but many other books as well, and particularly impressive uh, uh, in my view is the fact that, if anything, his output has accelerated in recent years. Um, his uh, incisive account of the financial crisis, uh, The Return of the Master, Keynes' Return of the Master, was published in 2009, and has been followed uh, by my reckoning by one book a year. Uh, and he may also be known to you by the fact that he comes here even more frequently than that, and we're very pleased to have his regular contributions to the public lecture uh, series here as well. The book is co-authored, as you probably know, uh, with his son, Edward Skidelsky, who's a lecturer in philosophy at Exeter, but was unable for personal reasons to be here with us tonight. But we're very pleased uh, to have as a discussant uh, Dr. Maurice Glassman, who is a reader in political philosophy at uh, London Metropolitan University, uh, but also has been very active in uh, political, uh, the political sphere here in the UK, perhaps known to many of you as the author of or initiator of Blue Labour, um, but as a constant source of new ideas uh, within uh, the Labour Party, but also in other fora as well. Uh, this book is one which in some sense follows on from uh, Professor Skidelsky's uh, extensive work on Keynes. Uh, he begins the book by talking about how uh, one of the sparks for the book was a uh, little-known essay by Keynes in 1930 uh, about, what is the title, The Grandchildren, Keynes? Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, which speculated on where uh, the economy might be, uh, as I'm sure he'll talk about a hundred years, uh, some hundred years later. But in many ways is really sparked uh, by, I think, the crisis uh, and uh, follows very naturally on from his earlier account of the crisis, uh, The Return of the Master. And it is a forward-looking book, which raises the, I think, more challenging question, where do we go from here? And I think in a week when we've been learning more and more about Barclays and the LIBOR scandal, their analysis of both the economic and moral defects of the current economic system resonates, I think, with us, and, uh, and they set out uh, what they believe is a way forward, a way uh, that takes us beyond where we seem to be stuck in terms of the current structure of the economic system. The structure for tonight is that uh, we will have uh, Professor Skidowski launching uh, the today by uh, setting out key arguments from his book, and then uh, Dr. Glassman will respond and will have uh, some, some combination of discussant conversation uh, there for the remainder of the first half, and then open it up to all of you uh, for questions in the second half of today's lecture. Uh, just a quick reminder, the Twitter uh, hashtag for today is LSC enough, and we certainly welcome uh, contributions uh, uh, there as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think this is working actually. Should it be working? Is it? Press the red button, please. Just underneath the microphone. Yeah? Okay. 
Great. Okay, thanks. You mentioned my son wasn't here for personal reasons. The reason he isn't here is he's just become a father for the first time, and he thought that birth took priority over this birth. Um, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry not that he isn't here. Um, yeah, and you also mentioned the uh, banking crisis. Um, and the House of Lords is a slightly dotty assembly from time to time, though not always. And um, yesterday we were having a debate on the, on, on, uh, the events um, at Barclays. And um, one peer got up and, and said with considerable force, he said, I've always barked at Bankleys. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that uh, was just, I think it's called a malaprop, isn't it? But anyway, he's normally, normally perfectly sound of mind. Um, <clears throat> until, until fairly recently, economists um, envisaged three stages of economic development. First, um, they thought that there was the stage of capital accumulation uh, started by the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the historian Eric Hobsbawm wrote a book called The Age of Capital, and it was about that, the accumulation of capital and how it started. Um, society saved a large part of its income to invest in capital equipment. The world gradually filled up with capital goods. That was stage one. <clears throat> stage one would be succeeded by stage two, which was people thought of as the age of consumption, in which people began realizing the fruits of their previous frugality. They would save less and consume more as the uh, returns to new investment fell and the possibilities for consumption increased. Then there would come the third and final stage. You can call it the age of leisure or the age of abundance. Um, uh, in this, in this age, with a surfeit of consumption goods, people would start swapping greater consumption for greater leisure. The world of work would recede, and this was supposed to be the end point of the economic phase of history. What would happen after that stationary state, uh, people weren't clear about. But at any rate, the economic phase of history, the age when, of, of wealth creation, would sort of come to an end. At, at some point, and people would find other things to do. Now, much of the world today has not yet reached the second stage, the age of consumption. The Chinese, for example, still save and invest on a colossal scale. But the problem of Western societies is different. We remain stuck in the age of consumption. We're there. We, we, we've reached it. We're a mass consumption society. But there we're stuck. We're much, much richer than we were 100 years ago. But hours of work have not fallen by nearly as much as, as people thought they would, certainly not nearly as much as, the, um, as productivity has risen. And we go on consuming more than ever. We seem unable to say enough is enough. And so that really was the question that, that gave rise to our book. Um, our starting point was Keynes's futuristic essay, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, um, which was published in 1930 in the, depth of the, in the depth of the Great Depression. And in that essay, he predicted that by now, we would only need to work 15 hours a week to satisfy the old Adam in us, was the way he phrased it. The rest would be 
well, leisure time plus sleep. Um, so why did he get it wrong? What did he get wrong? Well, I think we can concede straight away that the earlier economists, Keynes, of course, included, taking their cue from the poverty all around them, suffered from a certain poverty of imagination themselves. They thought in terms of quantities. You can only eat so much food. You can only have so many pairs of socks. Um, you can only live in so many houses. You can only own so many cars. Um, and, and once you sort of reached those limits, natural limits, you became satiated. Um, and that failed to allow for continued improvement in the quality of goods, which stimulates the appetite for cereal consumption and so keeps up the hours of work. I mean, they fail to allow for that. And I think, um, and I think it's, fa it's through failing to allow for that that we come closer to the heart of the problem. But before, before coming to what I think is the heart of the problem, we mustn't concede too much to this um, uh, propaganda of improvement. I mean, many so-called improvements are negligible. Um, and even when positive, consumers are constantly seduced by advertisers into overestimating their benefits and underestimating their disbenefits. For example, growth in wealth produces an increase in environmental externalities detrimental to well-being. Um, Adair Turner, um, uh, who's, uh, who was chief regulator, follows economist Roger Bootle in suggesting that the richer society becomes, the more activity becomes redistributive and not creative. His main examples are financial services, litigation, and brand competition. See, I think what what the older generation of economists, they, they, were, they were actually enthralled to the you know, theory which economists will know as um, the decli declining marginal utility. And they, they felt that, you know, that, that theory is true, applied to single goods. But it doesn't apply to fresh generations of goods, um, to, uh, um, all the com or to brand competition, um, to... Uh, um, all the all the seductive uh, combinations that advertisers are are are, are, are willing, you know very very um, uh, adept at dreaming up. I have an iPad too. I was finally seduced into buying my iPad too. Two months after I bought it, I was told it was obsolete. There's now iPad three. So my 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 um, uh, um, my satisfaction with iPad 2 might well have reached satiation point if it was only iPad 2, iPad 3. Now there's iPad 4 on the way, and iPad 5 and iPad 6 will no doubt come. So you're always kept going by the promise of improvements, and the improvements are completely marginal. Moreover, it takes me an enormous amount of time to understand how the new improvements work. So most of my ownership of iPad 2 to start with has been actually understanding how iPad 2 works. I haven't done anything for the last three months. Um, so, so there are these disbenefits, aren't there? Well, anyway, two implications of, of, um, of, of, the, of the falsity um, of the promise um, of, of consumption um, is that there are many um, uh, of those earning the highest rewards in our society today who are socially useless 
um, since their activities are essentially redistributive within their own circle. And I mean, Adair Turner thinks particularly of financial services as an example of a large amount of waste. Um, and then the other implication of, 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 of this criticism that I've just made is that um, the richer the societies are, the more arbitrary do our GDP numbers become. I mean, there's fictional GDP, and they're all, you know, uh, apart from the fact that GDP doesn't actually measure many, many of the things we regard as essential to welfare, the GDP numbers themselves become very, very arbitrary, and, and we're suffering from that today. We, we, we're told that in 2008, the government consistently overestimated GDP growth by including in it the, uh, the, the growth of the financial services, the profits generated by the financial services, and when the financial services collapsed, they found that, in fact, um, uh, uh, the potential growth had suddenly uh, dropped by about 3 or 4%, and that's why, that's why their budgets are in such trouble. So, a more serious charge is that many of the older generation of economists underestimated insatiability. Having more seems to make us want more, or different. Um, this is partly because we're by nature restless, um, easily bored, but it's mainly because wants are relative and not absolute. The grass is always greener on the other side. And the richer people become, or the richer societies become, the more they feel individuals in them feel their relative poverty to others. There's a huge literature about this. Thorsten Veblen was one of the, one of the famous uh, um, theorists of conspicuous consumption. But there are lots of variations. You know, they're the bandwagon. There's the bandwagon effect when we want things because other people have them. There's the snob effect when we want things because other people don't have them. And of course, um, and of course, um, band, bandwagon effects can easily become become. Um, I mean, snob goods can easily become bandwagon goods as more and more people acquire them, which leads to their abandonment by true snobs. And there's so there's <laughs> there's always this kind of uh, social interaction going on, which stimulates our, our jaded appetites. But there's a third factor for which for which the early economists can't really be blamed. Um, they were not egalitarians, people like Keynes, but they did think that growing prosperity would lift up all boats. They didn't foresee that the rich would race ahead of everyone else, capturing most of the fruits of increased productivity, and that's been especially true in the last 30 years. And one of the exceptions was Karl Marx, and the return of Marx is the return of another master, I think, who ought to be considered pretty, pretty seriously as a critic of capitalism. And the results of, the results of um, this grow, growing in, in egalitarianism has been to leave huge holes in our consumption society. A lot of people still don't have enough for a good life. Um, in Britain, 13 million households, 20% of the total, um, still live below the official poverty line. 13 million households, 21% of all households still live below the official poverty line. Um, they don't have enough to lead a good life. Um, there's a lot of underconsumption, in other words, going on relative to what our society is producing. An earlier, so, earlier generation of socialists called it poverty in the midst of plenty. So, and that partly explains the huge rise of debt um, as people aim to compensate for stagnating in incomes by borrowing more and more. 
And of course, the insufficiency of the market for mass consumption also helps to explain periodic crises of our productive system, as J. A. Hobson thought it would. So there's a lot of instability built into the inequality um, which, which has been growing um, since, since the Thatcher-Reagan revolutions. So, uh, what's to be done, as Lenin once said? Um, and that's the, last bit of our, that's the last bit of our book. Um, first, I think, we must convince ourselves that there is something called the good life, and money is simply a means towards it. To say that my purpose in life is to make more and more money is as insane as saying my purpose in eating is to get fatter and fatter. <clears throat> um, so we've got to convince ourselves individually that there is something called the good life, and we try to say in our book what we think the good life is. It's not arbitrary. It's not something we've just culled out of a dinner table conversation. It's really something that most philosophers in, at most times and in most places have agreed constitutes the good life, from Aristotle onwards in the West, but also including Indian and Chinese traditions. There's a lot of overlap there, and I think, you know, if one begins to talk about it, I think a lot of people will, will nod in agreement. But secondly, there are measures which we can take collectively to nudge us off the consumption treadmill. <clears throat> one is to improve job security. I mean, job security is the foundation of leisure. A government should restore, in my view, in our view, uh, the full employment guarantee, which they abandoned in, in the 1970s. Now, this doesn't mean guaranteeing everyone a, a, a full-time job in the old sense, that is, a 40-hour week. Government should gradually reduce the maximum allowable hours of work for most occupations, guaranteeing a job for everyone who wants to work that amount of time. In other words, a gradual reduction in maximum hours of work from 40, most people work a 40-hour week now, to 35, to 32, to 30. Everyone says this is awful, this is a terrific, terrible interference with, with the natural liberty of everyone to work a 100-hour week. Um, but, in fact, most civilized societies do impose maximum hours of work, and we've also been doing service since the Industrial Revolution. So it's not such a great new innovation. It's only thought of as an intellectual innovation, almost impossible to consider, um, you know, in the light of some of the curious ideas that have gained dominance in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and, and, and the French have got a 35-hour week, the Dutch work much less than we do without any loss of uh, standard of living and so on. So I, that would be one thing um, that I think we could do. Secondly, we could institute an unconditional basic income for all citizens. Um, and this would aim to improve the choice between work and leisure. Critics say that it would be a disincentive to work. Uh, that's precisely its merit in a society which should be working less and enjoying life more. Third, government should reduce the pressure to consume by curbs on advertising. We already have such curbs to guard against specific harms. You can all think of what the curbs are. Um, 
it would not be a big jump to recognize that excessive consumption itself is a harm, a harm on society, a harm to the environment, a harm to contentment, uh, to any mature conception of the good life. Because here's a point. Um, contentment doesn't increase with income. All the surveys show that income goes up. It's been going up per capita income for the last 30 years, but the line of happiness or contentment has remained completely flat. So you can't argue, really, that, any, that curbs on consumption via curbs on advertising are going to make people less happy. I mean, there's no evidence that it would. The happiest people in the world today are the Bangladeshis. So the surveys show. Um, and they're not by any means the richest. In fact, Bangladesh is one of the four poorest countries in the world. What does that tell us, actually? Well, what it, what, it tells, what it might tell someone is don't let's worry about lifting people out of poverty. Just have a psychic aspirin we give everyone. It just makes them happy, however poor they are. <clears throat> Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think, um, I think um, the, the, the argument that any, any attempt to curb uh, the consumption habits of our society is simply a, um, a, a big step to Stalin's gulag is, 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 is rubbish. Under, underpinning these measures would be a steeply progressive consumption tax with a top bracket of, say, 75%. This would be a tax on what is spent not a tax on what is earned. It's not a new idea. John Stuart Mill advocated it. There have been many, many very influential advocates of a consumption tax, progressive consumption tax, ever since, um, with Nic Nicholas Caldor, um, very famously uh, um, writing a book called An Expenditure Tax, James Mead, Robert Frank in America. Um, now, the aim of, of such a tax would be First, to reduce the pressure to consume, because the more you consume, the more tax you paid. Second, to finance basic income. And thirdly, to encourage private saving um, for old age and infirmity. Now, um, I, think, um, I think all of those things would, are worth, worth considering. All, all of them are open to criticism. And I'm sure objections have been forming in your minds. This wouldn't work. That would be an interference with liberty, and so on. And, and I'm, a, you know, we're both open to these objections, and this is, these aren't dogmatic proposals. But unless we do take a collective decision to get off the consumption tread, treadmill, we will never get to the point of saying we've got enough. And if we don't get to the point of saying what we've got enough, we'll go on wondering what all that toil and trouble on which we've been engaged for the last several thousand years um, were for. And so I think this is the moment when our own wealth-creating machine is, is in serious trouble, when we have to think, is not part of that trouble due to our own habits? And will we ever get out of that trouble uh, properly unless we start changing our habits? Because to change our habits is to change our civilization. Thank you very much. So, um, thank you. I feel um, a bit like an orphan standing in, standing in for your son here. Well, I, I hope it's not too disappointing. Um, 
and, and thanks very very much for that. I just thought to begin the sort of conversation really on, on in two areas. Um, the first relates is, as you said, you're moving towards a concept of a good life. You're you're moving into a, an idea of internal goods rather than external goods. Those ideas, and, and in and in contemporary philosophy and political theory, this is sort of summarised under virtue ethics. Uh, it's a move very much away from um, Keynes and and the economists. A move to quality, not not quantity. A move to the inter institutions and the role of institutions in upholding an ethos. Um, very much on the on the nature of 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 skill, you know, vocation and, and value. Um, and, and that links up to a range of, of sort of there was a there was an orphan in economic theory, if you remember, called institutional economics, which kind of got disowned along the way or reduced to a kind of rational choice institutionalism. Um, but if you look at if you look at um, if you look at the German economy, for example, which combines very strong constraints on capital in, in, in relation to regional banking, um, the internal governance of the firm with the representation of, of the workforce, but above all, the very strong stress on vocational qualification for market for market entry. Um, so, so, so I guess the polemical question on, on the first side is: you know, do you need Keynes anymore to help you along the way? Aren't you making a leap towards a qualitatively different type of type of thought? And that leads me to the to the next question, because obviously on, on our minds, and you mentioned it, is is that we're at a, very, a time of since the crash, but a time of huge economic rupture of, of economic change, and it remains the case that neither neoclassical nor Keynesian theory really have an explanation of of how to move to this good, how to move away from insatiability, from the monetization, financialization, individual incentives. There's a there's a crisis of mainstream economics, and um, and 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 here comes to my. So I'm working from within sort of the labour tradition, and and it, and it's interesting to me that the question I've got for you on that side is, haven't you bought in a little too much to the economic economistic conception of work and labour as is strange, alienated, externalised, monetised? I mean, when we're talking about leisure, it's very interesting to me. You talked about a sculptor, you talked about a teacher, you talked about a poet. I mean, I, I think of all of these as vocations, as work, as, as a, a central aspect of work. And that opens up into a wider... I mean, the, I really, really um, enjoyed the book um, enormously. Um, sort of so, but, uh, you know, reviewers have a tendency to do this. They then criticise you for not writing the book that they wanted you to write. So I'll join that noble tradition. And, and, and say that, um, that where's democracy in your good life? Where's the participation in the common life? Where's the, where's, where is that as an aspect? As a, and because going back to Aristotle, that's a fundamental aspect of the good life, is the transformation of a community of fate, you know, into a community that shapes its own destiny, and that leads to power. And this obviously leads ineluctably to capitalism, because what I think, if you go further, is going on, is that what what capitalism does. And I've, I, I get the Keynes and the Marx, but I've just had another Karl Karl Polanyi. I think is a very important figure here in in the theory of commodification. That what capitalism does is puts enormous stress to turn human beings and their natural environment into commodities 
and then you spend the rest of your life trying to trying to buy back what was estranged um, under the under the market system, and with the intensification of financialization, that 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 becomes um, even harder. And the way that that was resisted was was through democracy, and particularly in the labour tradition, through work democracy, through through an idea of the protection of status, of vocation, of those things that I mentioned in relation to the into the German economy that have been very effective. And one of the very strange and counterintuitive things I think is that it turns out that not only um, has has there been a return of Marx, but I think Catholic social thought coming out of Aristotle with its distinction between productive and predatory capital, to coin a phrase, um, is a very is is a very important one. So I'm I'm wondering whether whether the role of work in a good life is absolutely fundamental, both in terms of collegiality, in terms of the learning of skill, in turning of the transformation um, of the world, in terms of the relations and the relationships that are generated by that, the actual role of democracy itself, as the politics of a good life, which can resist through association the domination of capital and can protect a notion of a good that isn't exclusively the maximization of your individual utility. So in terms, so the first polemical question is, do you need Keynes and, and for this good life? And the second question much more is, is what is the role of, of democracy and challenging the constant, because one of the issues with the basic income is that it assumes a form of solidarity that has to be crafted and generated. It's not, the objection to it is, is, is not that everybody would be idle, only mad economists think that without the incentive of money we would be idle, obviously there's, there's lots of things that we could be doing. The argument against it is, is that there's not a foundation, is that how do we generate solidarity, how do we generate those political relationships that can resist the domination um, of financial markets and it turns out that the, the, the best bet is around work and around those, those areas um, and that's particularly true in, in terms of of labour, so so I think lots more to say. I'll, I'll just begin the conversation there and see how it goes. Well, thank you, thank you, Morris. They're all challenging ideas. I think some of them, some of them, um, uh, we we, um, we 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 do we do try and address. But I think there's a big semantic issue. Um, what do we mean by work? What do we mean by leisure? Mm -hmm. um, we define work quite carefully as um, uh, activity that is done for an external reason. And that most obviously applies to paid work. I, and this is quite a classical economics um, perspective on work. Work is a disutility. Work is a cost. And you incur that cost in order to obtain goods, goods necessary to life. So that's our definition of work. Now, you could are, and then everything else, everything you do um, um, which, which you don't do for an extrinsic reason is what we call leisure. That is, leisure is activity that is done for its own sake. Now, I think that's, that's the very, very crude distinction, and there are lots of grey areas. For example, some people would argue 
that work has become much more agreeable than it used to be. We're no longer, most people aren't beasts of burden who are worn out by the time they're 50, as work used to be for most people until 100, 150 years ago, and that there are areas of work which are now actually do give intrinsic satisfaction, that people actually get a lot out of them, and they get a lot out of them not only in terms of you know, the, 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 the work they're doing, but also in the social aspects of work and all that. Um, and, and that's true. But I'm not sure that it's still true for the majority. Um, I don't believe that the chefs um, at Pret-a-Manger are passionately creating their, um, for the love of their customers and the love of their food, um, uh, uh, you know, 10 or 15 hours, 10 hours a day, creating these wonderful products. They do it because they're earning a living. And that's, that's ad, ad man's talk. Now, it's not true. We enjoy our work, don't we? And we don't do it for a living, do we? Um, but... Well, it's not a good living. <laughs> not a good living. But, you know, most people work for a living. So I think that's... And that's the way Keynes thought of, of, of work and how work would recede gradually as we didn't... As society became rich enough to afford um, people a living, a good living, um, without having to work nearly as much as they used to before. So I think um, we, we get into this semantic problem of work and leisure. So when you talk about work as being a center um, I would, uh, of, li of life, I would sometimes interpret that simply. I'd ask you to consider that distinction yep. between work for an extrinsic reason and work for an intrinsic and extrinsic. And basically what Keynes wanted to do was to abolish work. He thought we'd be rich enough to abolish work at some time, which didn't mean that everyone would be idle. It would just mean that a whole other range of human possibilities and human activities uh, would be opened up. Um, hobbies would not become just things you did in the odd moment, but they might become come close to the centre of life. And in a similar way, Keynes also thought um, that the notion of retirement would become obsolete at some point, this division of, of life into a working life and then that long epilogue between, um, between work and death known as retirement I mean, you know, what do we do with retirement? We've got it's a big social problem, it's a financial problem, it's a social problem. People won't know what to do. Well, of course they won't know what to do or less likely to know what to do if they've spent the whole of their previous 40 years just working because they, you know, they're inapt. They haven't developed any uh, of, the, of, the, of, of, of the real possibilities of retirement. So that's one thing. Now, you, second point, I think, you ask about democracy and the importance of democracy in resisting capitalism. Well, one of our basic goods is fraternity. Yeah. We call it friendship, but we also call it fraternity. And that was one of the ideals of the French Revolution. Roughly, roughly community, a sense of community. It was a sense of community, after all, um, uh, which grew in the 20th century, perhaps was crystallized or reached its maximum after the Second World War, which enabled systems of progressive taxation to be established, which enabled the idea of citizenship to, to get its political currency, which um, also brought about the power of the trade unions to push against, I think, the innate tendency of capitalism towards more and more inequality. So I think it's one of our basic goods, and therefore, you know, politics, 
needs to be directed towards realizing it. How, whether through the labor movement or through other, other forms of social movement, um, is not something we talk about. Uh, but, but I mean, obviously, um, so I'm not against what you're saying. And of course, you're right, Aristotle did regard politics in the sense of working for the community and feeling for the community as, as one of the highest goods. And we follow in that, we follow that tradition. Um, Karl Polanyi, Keynes, they, 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 share, they share one view, and, and actually they share it with Marx, which is, the problem is this, what these people all accepted, they accepted that capitalism was a system forced, really, on, on most people by elites, for one reason or another. But at the same time, they regarded it as necessary, a necessary stage that you had to work through with all its injustices, horrors, um, and inequalities in order to get, as Keynes put it, from the realm of economic necessity into the sunlight, which echoes, you know, mm -hmm. their echoes of Marx in that, that sort of phrase. So he thought that you had to go through that um, in order to get there. We call that the Faustian bargain, the bargain with the devil, really. And so they accepted it. Um, and I think it's perfectly clear if you go back to the history of political economy, the origins of political economy, people like Adam Smith, they really thought that people were innately inert and had to be forced into productive activity. Um, and that was the only way to get the wealth of nations growing. And there was a large element of hist historical understanding. Why, I mean, they asked the question, why the, uh, were, why the world remained so poor? for thousands and thousands of years. Why had there been no economic progress? And the answer they came up to was that the spirit of greed, of self-improvement, had never really been liberated from the restraints of custom and of religion and so on. And, and so they were, they were enlightenment thinkers and they, they would release capitalism to do its best and, at a certain, and then later on, when it had done its best, it would cease to exist either through revolution in the case of Marx or through, in Keynes's idea, really a withering away of capitalism, what it had done its job. Now, all that hasn't happened. And finally, we, um, I accept completely what you say about Catholic social thought. I think it's very important. Um, I, ha I read through all the encyclicals on, 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 on social policy in, in preparing the last chapter, which is one I was mainly responsible for. And, um, and, and you know, it's marvelous. There's marvelous stuff, and it's anti-capitalist. It's an anti-capitalist defense of private property, if you can think of that, really. And that's what papal encyclicals are about. Okay, so those, those are roughly my replies to what you said. But I, I, I agree with a lot of Absolutely. But work-leisure, the work-leisure semantics are, are important, I think, in getting, getting clear, so clear thought before on this. We, before we open up, just to, just to stay on, so I'm making, I'm arguing roughly that around about 1830s, um, there was a dis another distinction made within the working life of the country that was institutionalised through law, and it, went, and it was between a profession and a vocation, and it went roughly like this, that if you were a... Um, if you were a doctor, or if you were an accountant, or if you were um, a, a dentist, or, or any of those, then you would have your status protected in the law. There was no free market in those things. You had to serve 
an apprenticeship and there were self-governing institutions that upheld the ethical constraints. But if you were if you were part of what they called the vocations, if you were a bricklayer, if you were a plumber, if you were an engineer, then you were put into that extrinsic, externalised sphere of the labour market. So what there was was a was a and, and academics were were included in the in the professional side. Although I think we may have forgotten about that in our line management structure these days. Um, academic uh, wage slaves were some you know, sometimes called. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's worse. It's worse. I I, real, I I realized it was worse when I realized that I did work on the living wage. By the way, I always when I come to LSE, my best memory of being here is the living wage campaign which where we, we initially had to go as far as calling it the London School of Exploitation. It was one of the, it was, it, you know, because of the way that the cleaners and the cooks were treated. And it was a dream because um, one of the rules in community organising is always work, you know, always make your, your opponent live up to their rule book. And um, I delved into the thing and I found out the founding documents of LSE, which said that LSE was an institution there to uphold the dignity of labour and the poor. And we sort of read that out at the... AGM, and uh, in the end they said, oh, all right then. We'll, um, uh, we'll, 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 we'll go with that. Um, and, and, and I want to, I want to honour that, but um, doing some work recently at, at Waitrose, at John Lewis, one of the most evocative phrases I ever heard in a living wage campaign is the contracted out cleaner said to me, I feel like a rat in a palace. I thought that a feeling I've, I have at the House of Lords quite often. And, um, and, 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 and the, the kind of point I'm, I'm moving to um, with all of that is, is that the intrinsic skill and nature of, of, of a vocation of a work was abolished by capitalism for the working poor. And we need to resist. So the, the distinction between the intrinsic and external, I agree with you about the alienated nature of, of the Protomanger, but, but one of the reasons why it is, it is like that is the lack of any representation of labour in the institutions of the firm, any status for this casual labour in the governance of capital. So I'm, I'm just suggesting that... Isn't it a, just to interject, isn't it a function of the increasing division of labour which Adam Smith recognised, he, he recognised that the division of labour would reduce most workers to idiocy. And that's why he was so in favour of education. Well, well this, is, this, is the, this is the twist in the tale of the story. So it turns out under the incredibly ugly heading of value added that the nature of even competitive advantage is, gen is, the, is, the, is the skilled and demanding work with a very strong notion of the internal logic of it is in fact the key to having a competitive economy. That's the lesson of Germany in a way. Yeah. That, and, and so what you're defining under the leisure is in fact the foundation of a, of, of a functioning economy. So I'm just putting yeah. into the pot for future discussion that, that, that all work has an internal good. It's just that a lot of that tradition has been um, abolished by the nature of the wage capitalist system and, and that's a fruitful area but as you can probably see this is a bit like the House Lords, we could go on we could, um, I've, I've, I've been barking at bankers for quite a while now so I, I, I think we should open up to conversation uh, Robert, anything you want to say in response before we? No, no, I, I mean I'm very happy if, uh, if it's uh, if we can throw it open Great. Um, Okay, so um, I'd like to throw it open and uh, I'll take questions in threes so yes, first of all 
And please wait for the microphone. And if you could just say who you are as you begin your question. Uh, my name is David Harrington, and I'm a member of the public. Um, I have a lot of sympathy, Professor, with your ideas, but they seem amazingly isolationist in the global world. I mean, we live, we have to be pretty productive. And if we did what you were doing, I don't know quite how we'd survive. Right there in the center, if you can wait for the microphone. Communal effort to get the microphone. Uh, I'm an investment banker, so obviously not a member of the public. Um, <laughs> you referred to changing our habits, but also to our natures. Um, is it a habit we can change, or do our natures of, of a tendency to boredom and insatiability, you know, do they doom us to wanting to run on the treadmill? Okay, and then finally the woman in the very back row there on the right-hand side, her arm up. Um, hi, I just want to ask, uh, I'm, I'm Rachel, I'm a student at LSE. Um, I want to ask um, Professor Skidelsky about uh, the role of religion and, and the good life. Because in your book you seem to imply that the good life is impossible without some kind of commitment to a higher being or some kind of a society that follows a religious impulse. I'd just like you to kind of explain that and maybe qualify that a little bit more. Thanks. Do you want... Um, yes, and the first question um, about um, uh, being isolationist um, in the global world. Of course, it is true. I'm talking about the rich part of the world. I mean, the address, the, the, the book is addressed to that part, which is a very large part of the world, by the way. And other, 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 um, other um, countries, other areas are sort of becoming wealthier. Um, it's not... Uh, uh, an, a message that you would want to um, um, give to people who are very, very poor, um, because I mean, it's it's not it's not irrational for them to want more. Um, it's very rational, and 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 there's a big poverty uh, elimination program that is still very valid for a billion or two billion uh, people, and maybe even more, um, who simply are not anywhere near the standard of living of Western countries. But. Um, the, the, the broader implication of that question is can the rich part of the world in some way cut itself off um, from the poor part of the world in terms of trade, in terms of uh, capital mobility, in terms of migration. Those are the three integrating things that are going on in the world. And won't our um, levels of an already achieved um, uh, enoughness be constantly undermined um, by um, um, competition with with um, with with cheaper cheaper labour cheaper cheaper goods. I think that's a very big question uh, because what it raises is the question: is what is our duty towards those who are less fortunate than we are? Um, it is it to keep open markets until everyone has reached some standard of enoughness, the seven billion people in the world, and meanwhile forego our own capacity for a good life 
in order to enable every, everyone else to catch up? Or is it a different duty? I'm, I think um, we have to just consider, reconsider globalization as a project. Um, I, I, I think globalization is a noble sounding ideal. I think as a project, a lot of people behind it actually were really, really interested in outsourcing production to cheaper, uh, cheaper uh, uh, low-wage labor and getting rid of trade unions. I mean, all dressed up in the noble language of humanity and everything else. So I think we need to consider that. I think we need to consider the role of protectionism. I don't think, uh, protection actually is a good word. Protectionism is regarded as a very, very bad word. So I think, I think you've raised a very important question. What is our duty towards the poor of the world? And how can it be discharged um, in, in a way that doesn't actually force us downwards, to not exactly to their level, but actually uh, sacrifices our own achieved possibilities of a good life? Um, secondly, um, from the investment banker, um, uh, Nowadays, um, nowadays, say you're an investment banker. Do you find it? Um, do you find everyone sort of says, "Wow, what a great thing to be," or do you find, or, or, or do you find yourself a bit on the defensive? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, I think you do. <laughs> I think there is a natural tendency to boredom and restlessness, and it needs to be sort of like scratching, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't have to be re 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 released um, um, by a simply commercial treadmill. There are so many possibilities in the human race. We've identified all progress with economic progress, but there's a lot of progress you can think of. In fact, it would be it would be it would be it would be impossible to think of Western civilization um, as simply. Um, uh, abandoning any idea of progress um, just because we've got enough material goods. There are masses of goods that we haven't got yet and, and which are within the, within, within the human possibilities which we can start thinking about if we get off this particular treadmill. That's, that's what I'm, that, that would be my basic answer. And finally, religious impulse. Can one actually re revive the idea of a good life without a spiritual or religious impulse? Of course, the Aristotelian idea of the good life did, didn't, um, I don't think it did depend on a religious, I mean, this was a pagan, this was a pagan view. Um, um, and there was no explicit religious um, inspiration behind it. Um, but I'm not sure that you can do that today. And I, I wobble on this subject. Can you develop now a purely secular idea of a good life? Or does it need the support of, of, of a religion or a spiritual view of the world? And how can you have a spiritual view of the world, um, a non-material view of life, into which materialism fits but doesn't dominate without, without, without the support of a religion? I don't know the answer to that. And I'm, I'm wrestling with it the whole time. Yeah, just to, just to add on that point, just to butt in, um, is that that's a huge thing with, with Blue Labour and the conversation. So the experience with, with London citizens taught me that there's massively depleted moral resources in the, in the country, that there's been a, a really fundamental breakdown in a lot of the secular societies which, which used to uphold concepts of humanity and the good 
and that when it came to the to to for example the living wage campaign it was the churches and the mosques that were very active and which had the support of poor people immigrant immigrants um, within a framework of what is a good of what is a good life so what's 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 being put forward is that is that a broad based notion of a common good will have to involve also a negotiation between the secular and the religious in order to uphold a robust conception of the good and one example would be Aristotle started off obviously in Greece where the ultimate good was the polis now then it was picked up by Aquinas you know in terms of um, the good the good life understood much more widely then then that's the foundation of the Catholic social thought in yeah. fact, with insatiability, with a concept of vocation, with a concept of a moral nature, just to go back to, I'm really sorry you didn't give your name and have to be referred to endlessly as the investment banker. Um, is, anyway, Mr. Diamond, the point being, it, 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 and you can take off the beard now. Um, the, point, the point being is that the, the concept of the, of the person in that conception capable of love and grace, capable of wickedness and selfishness, and the institutional design being, dis, you know, the incentives to virtue that go on with that. But that's also really linked to, so there's an alternative story. It's, it's the, in, in the same way as academic economics have se has severed the actual relationships and knowledge required in an economy and put it into a mathematical formula for a brutal abstraction, so it is that the relationship between the universities, liberty, what went on in monasteries, the conditions for the development of extended trade was not based self selfishness. It was a very particular configuration of institutional forms that had existed for, for centuries of which the religious orders were a fundamental part of preserving knowledge. So it's a very complicated story, but the central thing is a broad-based theory of the common good will have both secular and religious within it. And that asks a lot more, it turns out, of the secular than the religious because of the Enlightenment assumption that we'd left all of that stuff behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Let me take some more uh, questions. Uh, let me start here with you at the end of the row, and then just go ahead so that people with the mics can, then the woman there in the blue shirt uh, behind him, and then here on top, this person yeah, right there in the second row. Right, thank you very much. I'm Mark Grayling. Um, I'd uh, like to move on to something practical and how we get off the treadmill and the kind of things we can do to actually uh, achieve that. And I'm wondering if we can move towards it by shifting the balance of ownership and mutualising many more industries um, so that there's a, there's a stake other than work that people have and maybe that's the way towards the, the citizen's income. Um, if that's a leap too far, should we at least go down the German co-determinist route? Hi there, my name's Mildred Talabi and I speak, write and blog about careers. And um, my question, Professor, I'm interested in knowing, over here, yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in knowing what um, your thoughts, do you think that if we did more to encourage people, especially young people, to pursue their their passions from a young age that we would even need to have this conversation at all because it would end up in a place whereby people would be doing vocation that they would love at the same time. So you're combining work and leisure at the same time. 
So I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Hi, um, my name's Nora Russell. I'm a member of the public. Um, I also work for a women's organization called Women for Women International. And I'm gonna bring the gender perspective into this and ask, you know, if we do get to a situation, sorry, hi, I'm up here. Ah, I was asking where you were at politically. <laughs> if we do get to a situation where we have 15-hour weeks for paid employment, um, what does that mean for our, our non-paid employment? Um, and actually, just attack it on the end. Um, technology. I, sitting here in this lecture theatre right now, I've received 20 work emails. Am I working right now? How is that affecting, you know, how, how do you say, how, how do you decide and govern your 15 or 35 or however many hours are, are meant to be your work hours when technology is really merging our, our concept of work and leisure time? Thank you. Yeah, well, they're terribly uh, interesting, all, all of those questions. Um, uh, I think the 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 problem the problem I I think is with the first two, um, or what I would say about the first two is that they still haven't broken away from the work paradigm and how you organise work in a in a, a more um, in in a, in a more agreeable, satisfying way. And, and maybe this is one of the things we, we will go on bickering a bit about. But I, I think, I think we, we've obviously established a difference there. Um, in terms of a work paradigm, of course, of course, I think, uh, I think demutualization turns out to have been a huge error of the 1980s. Demutualization. And mutualization was, 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 was a cooperative relationship. Um, between um, uh, within within companies, building societies and others, um, which one's very sad to have lost. But but that is that is something still within the world of work and, and how to make work uh, more of a community. The trouble with vocation, I mean, I, I have problems with vocation because because the way it's often been used is simply as a form of training. Mm -hmm. um, you know. People used to go to school, you know, one lot went to grammar school and another lot went to secondary modern school and the secondary modern school people were trained, were vocational schools. They were trained to be um, hewers of, 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 of wood and, 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 and to do manual work. And so I, I'm a bit troubled about vocation um, because it suggests it suggests um, not uh, it not not a sort of expansion of human possibilities, but a form of skilling for a particular type of job, vocational employment, vocational qualifications. It's not quite, I think, um, that rather nice idea of the professional qualifications of a lawyer and academic. I mean, uh, we could be we 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 could be called but, uh, people who have vocational qualifications. But on the on the on the whole, that's not how people would use the term. But can it be retrieved? In that I'm not sure it can be. You see, and therefore I would prefer uh, the vocabulary of work and leisure. But you know, and the final thing is um, on the 15-hour week. Well. The idea is not that 
um, I mean, Keynes's idea was that actually we could afford to pay people for working 15 hours uh, much more than they used to be paid for working 40 or 50 hours. And that was the, that was the miracle of productivity. Um, but it hasn't happened because we run a society in which most of the gains of productivity, or a very, very large proportion of them, are captured by a very small group of people. And therefore, people could be paid a lot more for their 15 hours if they were working 15 hours than they would get under the present circumstance, when they'd be very lucky to get anything like a living wage even for working 15 hours. Um, so, um, what, what, what you would be aiming for would be, first of all, to get more of a a more of a, uh, an income out of your earned work than you get now, and then an income which is independent of work, which is where the basic unconditional income would come in. And what would make that sort of possible would be quite a substantial redistribution. And I would, I would prefer to do it through a cons progressive consumption tax, which would exempt people at the lower end, but would actually be a, 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 a result in a bigger tax take than a uh, far bigger tax take than, 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 than governments now get. So uh, I, I think, to, yeah, it's very difficult to move from where we are now um, um, to, to where, we'd like, where I'd like us to be, where the two authors would like us to be. But it does require some sort of revolution in the mind just to envisage the possibility of another, another, another way of organizing society. Yeah. Um very briefly, Mark, I'm really with, you know, um, I'm with that thing. And just, uh, so this is a very living political thing. So yesterday I was in Dover, Dover Port. Now, so this is an example of sort of a mixture of commodification and, and, and politics. So the idea is, is that they want to privatise Dover Port. And, you know, sometimes you have to work within what Aristotle called the doxa, or the common understandings of the people. And the, idea, and the first in line to buy it are the French. You know, now, the idea that the French are going to buy Dover Port, I see political you know, possibilities there for organising against that. And um, so, you know, uh, just, just to warn everybody, you know, don't believe everything you read, but believe some of it. And, um, They'd run it better, wouldn't they? Well, that's, that's the issue about the ownership of the assets. So the, so the proposal being put forward by the People's Port is that the Port of Dover itself should be endowed to the people of Dover in perpetuity for the nation, i.e. it can't be sold off, but it will be theirs, theirs to own, and, and that there should be a tripartite split between workers, um, Dover Council and funders in the common running of that, which is, you know, guess what, based on the hand supports in Germany in terms of how they run it. So I think that, and it's the same with the Chinese trying to buy northeastern water, there's certain assets that, that can be transferred to the people that are neither state-owned nor market-owned, and I think this is a really important dimension of the good, is having some power and responsibility over your own life shared with others in terms of governance and in terms of power. So I just want to say that that's really, you know, that, that's why I'm really engaged with that proposal, so neither, you know, neither a, a, a centralised state stimulus package, nor I sometimes put it neither, neither cuts nor vivisection, but a long-term stable relationship would be a better idea. Um, and, it, and in terms of what Laura was saying, I've got a new definition of freedom. You know, freedom is emails delete unread. 
you know, just to share that with you. I just rejoice every day and ding, 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 ding. Uh, and, uh, and just to delete them unread, I recommend it to everybody to do that at least five times a day. And uh, let it go, let it go. My life completely changed when I stopped answering emails. Uh, just to let you know, really things changed. And I started meeting and talking to people. And incredible, now I got into huge trouble at work over that, but it was really worth it. Um, yeah. just, just, to, just to let you know, much better. Now, but to get to the serious side of this, in terms of there's gender-coded virtues as well, I just want to raise, raise that. So, so the male virtues are virtues of courage and honour and, and relating to that, female virtues relating to love and kindness. We've got to completely mix it up, you know, for, but not abandon the virtues. That's the, I mean, I'll just say that, that so the, the issues confronting women are, are, are huge issues of inequalities of power, of, of qualification, and also increasingly of lack of support because so much of caring for others still goes that way. So I'm really pushing hard for a combination of um, non-gendered or re-gendered vocational training plus childcare and old, uh, that being a very popular um, political agenda. I just wanted to mention it's, that's where I think it should go. So. Yeah, you see, I'm still unhappy about vocation. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, can I just uh, jump in there? I wonder, particularly building on what Mark and Morse were saying, if maybe your work leisure distinction seems somewhat artificial against your discussion of, of the good life and the basic goods, that actually more resonant, more, more uh, better aligned with that would be some focus on meaning. So, whether you know, the, the extent to which we get meaning through our work is actually what's more important. Yeah. But, okay, I, I mean, uh, of course I'm not against, I'm, I'm, in fact, activity that um, carries no meaning um, would be, um, would be um, uh, appalling, obviously, you know, not worth doing. Activity must carry some meaning. The extrinsic meaning is that it, it uh, gives you goods you want, but they're intrinsic meanings which arise from the nature of the work. But my, uh, I mean, my difficulty is that I don't think that most work that people do can be rendered meaningful um, as work is as we now think of work. Most people do not get very much meaning out of their work and if asked they would actually be doing something else. Um, now we all get a lot of meaning from our work but we're not a representative sample. I, I, I would insist on that. And even people who um, say at first, oh yes, I'm really enjoying this job, and sort of, uh, you know, I love being chef at Pret-a-Manger, so, and they all have very nice smiles when you go in and everything else. But actually, they, that's not what they want to be doing. That's not what they want to spend their life doing. And if you ask them, why are you doing this? They're not saying because I'm getting so much meaning out of things. It's because they need to. I mean, they, they, they have to. They have to get to, to earn a living. Um, so I'm skeptical about um, thinking that one can transform most work that is now being done in the society as it now is into something, into something meaningful, um, uh, or really seriously meaningful. And if you then say, oh, well, okay, now most work is alienated work, or a lot of work, a lot of work with then how do you get to a non-alienated um, stage? Because some, it's, there's something to do with the job itself, not just the way you organise the community around the job. 
Well, you, so. can, you can do anything well. I mean, anybody who's been to to Italy would realise that there's, you know, a good way to make a cup of coffee, and then there's the pot manger way to make a cup of coffee, <laughs> and that's to do with the internal yeah. Yeah. internal, you know, on a skill. Um, other things and there's good and bad ways of doing everything. I, d I just share with you we're going to carry on nagging each other about this. So I think that the vocational yeah. idea which involves a calling, I just want to go back to, to your question, you know your thing involves a, a sense of calling, a sense of something that's distinctive to you, that's a very big meaning of vocation that, that needs to be retrieved yeah, but it's, yeah. it's more like an anecdote. So at Labour Party conference last year, got into a load of trouble, I said I'd close down half the universities and turn them into vocational colleges and I'd put the law schools and the medical schools in the vocational yeah. colleges um, to, to get over that class distinction. And, and the next day there was a press release from the BMA and the Law Society saying what an absolutely terrible, terrible, terrible idea this was. Yeah. So I thought it was definitely a move in the right direction. In, in, in <laughs> because what, what we've got a... What we've, I mean, one important thing about the, the market is it does challenge, which is a great thing about the price system and the market, is it does challenge people's self-definition. So a lot of people say, yeah, I'm a poet, you know, and thank God, you know, they have to earn their living another way because if you hear their poetry, you'd know, and, and that's particularly true of male electric guitarists. I'm internally grateful that we... And, and also amateur photographers, I think. I'd, I'd, I'd put them into that list of people that, you know, you really aren't obliged to, to look at their photographs, um, even, on, even on Facebook, I think. So, so what I'm saying is, is, is that this sense of vocation does, does require skill does require talent but also a tradition which you belong to so I'm trying to bring that concept of, yeah. of tradition and excellence back into a concept of manual work and we're better to start than with doctors and now I'm thinking about it maybe economists as well Good, more questions uh, Yeah, so here let me go ahead and select uh, three, okay yes there, the, uh, in the blue shirt yeah, in the top and uh, okay, right over here in the third row that's it for now we'll do that. Yes, the, um, <coughs> my name is Hugh Edwards. The economic landscape has changed since the 1930s when Keynes wrote his book in, in an astonished, I think he would be astonished at the economic la landscape today and the things that he took for granted no longer hold good. That, for example, the <coughs> uh, in people no longer live within their means. In 1930, very few people had bank accounts. So you had to live within your means. Uh, there was no alternative. There were no credit cards. You couldn't go to the bank and get a personal loan. And that changes people's outlook. Uh, things have changed. You know, pensions are things for a minority these days. There are so many self-employed consultants that the old relationship of employee and employer is is uh, just doesn't um, exist anymore. And what puzzles me is that you speakers mentioned Karl Marx. Marx predicted as as you know these days, people's uh, economic outlook has deteriorated, that they would revolt against the government and it, it just it's just not happening you know I detect most people who suffered who are suffering you know lost their jobs or whatever 
there's an attitude of passive acceptance of what's been dished out to them. And there's no, you know, the Marx prediction that we would all rise up and, you know, revolt against all this doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, hi. I'd like to pick up slightly from the second question from the last batch, which I don't think was so much about the difference between vocations and professions, but really uh, about the, the mindset of work. So from the earliest stages of education, we're being prepared to enter the workforce. All our examination systems are based on gaining qualifications which will allow us to work in the future. So surely you'd have to start from the very... Uh, from the very beginning of our lives and preparing us for thinking more about spending our time living rather than spending our time working. And with that in mind, who, who would you look to in society to kind of promote this? Where, where are the role models for a life well lived rather than a job well performed? Hello, my name is Robin Latimer. I wonder if you've uh, given enough emphasis to the question of equality. Um, I, I particularly want to, to mention Professor Wilkinson's book, The Spirit Level, um, which shows that everybody is happier in a more equal society. And in practice, one of the reasons our, society, our, our wage, our income level is so uneven is that a lot of people are earning at such a high level that they are clearly doing it in order to keep their place in the pecking order um, rather than actually to make sure they've got bread on the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, well, very quickly, yes. Um, uh, in, in, in the order of the questions, I think there were two questions um, uh, in the first comment. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. In the 1930s, the whole credit card system, higher purchase system, was in its infancy. In America, it had already started. And that does change attitudes. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it, it's the idea that we must have what we want now, and we can get it now by getting into debt. Um, that, that is one of the great achievements of capitalism. It, it's financial innovation. Uh, the whole credit card system, system of, uh, of, 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 of getting into debt in order to get what you want. To, in other words, to, to um, um, get in advance on the basis of the income you expect to receive, the goods that you want. The Victorian idea was you waited, and saving was waiting, uh, and, then you, and, then you, and then you got it. I think, I think there's a lot of virtue in saving, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to saving. And in fact, people I know who have retired um, quite early in their lives, um, I use the word retired, but they've actually decided they want to live a good life. They've accumulated some savings out of their, out of their, out of their working life in order to be able to do that. So that, that's, that I think is part, part of, it's part of security. If you're in debt and you're, and, uh, you, you're actually insecure, you don't know what your income really is or, and your expectations are subject to enormous fluctuation depending on what happens in the stock market, whether the banks go bust and so on. So I, I think um, that I, I agree with that. The second point, why don't they revolt against the system? Well, I mean, Marx, Marx didn't, didn't conceive of the possibility, though Lenin did, that um, capitalism would actually generate enough wealth to do a lot of bribery. 
um, and, um, and there would be enough, there would be enough goodies distributed in order to keep people passive and not, not mine. And we're brilliant at that because we, we have all these debt credit card instruments to give people access to goods. And we actually do, uh, do, do uh, manage to get some general increase in real incomes going um, for, for, for most people, though, though not for, by any means for large minorities. There's been a growing gap between medium, median and mean income in the last 30 years. But until recently, um, of course, they were more or less rising um, together. Um, and now that's been reversed, and that's dangerous. So there may be more political opposition now, particularly in Europe, um, than, than we've seen um, hitherto. Um, a second question. Um, how, what are the, that's a very, very difficult question. I mean, you, you say rightly, we're, be, we're being prepared for the world of work um, and not for the world of leisure. And what are the role models for a life well lived rather than for a job well done? I don't know. Uh, I mean, there, there are role models. Um, uh, uh, but most of our, um, well, 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 I mean, talk of the celebrities. Um, these are our role models, aren't they? Um, I, I was, I was, um, I was in, interviewed the other day by John Humphreys on the Today program, and we were talking about this subject. And he said, look, I love my job, and I work 15 hours a day. Um, now, I suppose he's a sort of celebrity. Everyone listens, a lot of people listen to the Today program. Too early. And too early. No, it goes on till 9 o'clock. You mean you're not up by 9? I've <laughs> <laughs> got a night vacation. You've got a night. So I think they do get a lot of satisfaction out of, out of what they're doing. But then they also get a satisfaction about, uh, out of being famous, don't they? And that we would call an intrinsic reason for doing what you're doing. It's, it's instrumental. A celebrity. It's an external reason. It, it, well, you, you call it external, I call it extrinsic. We mean the same thing, don't we? I think we mean the same thing. I mean, Federer um, is, obviously gets a lot of pleasure out of playing tennis. I mean, it's, I, I don't think he'd do anything else. But also, um, and also uh, pleasure being good at, good at what he's doing. But of course, there's a lot of fame, and there's a lot of money that goes, that goes with it. And if you ask, why is it that um, top tennis players play tennis, um, is it money or is it enjoyment of, of, um, of, of what they're doing? So I think there's, 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 there's a huge grey area there. And finally, um, would we be happier in a more equal society? Yes, I think we would. And I, I accept a lot of the Wilkinson analysis. And, and in, 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 the, in, the, in the early part of the last century, when people talked about permissible income gaps, they were thinking about one in 20, one in 25. In 1930, when Keynes was writing The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, professional people earned about five times as much as, as manual workers. Those are very small gaps, not, not complete equality by any time. They'd narrowed a lot since Victorian times. And then they've, now they've started to widen again, so that, in fact, a, a, a CEO of a top 
a Fortune 500 company in America earns 500 times more than the, the, the work, worker on, on the shop floor of his company. And there's a huge gap, and not only in income terms, but in wealth terms. So, uh, now, those are not happy societies, and I don't think they can, they can, actually, um, they can actually be societies in which a good life is, is led by a majority, because they don't contain some of the basic ingredients of a good life. And one is respect, which requires quite a lot more equality than we have. Another is personality. A lot of personalities are sim simply suppressed by that system. Fraternity, friendship. Um, is, is not possible, or not, not, not nearly enough for a good life, and so on. Um, so I think greater equality is an absolute condition of any of the things I've been saying. Okay, we're just about to the end of our time, but I'll take three more questions, but please be very concise, and so we can get the three and have a little bit of time to respond. So first, yes, this woman here in the second row, there, uh, the person in the black jacket there at the very back, and then... Uh, sorry, this person here in the black shirt. Thank you. Um, hello. Hi. 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 <laughs> um, it must be hard for you to see us all. No, um, no I'm, I'm, I can see. It's just... No, I don't mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's so many of us. My, my um, directional, my directional um, ability is still intact. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to say that I think that the poster boy country for a lot of what you're saying would be Cuba with some health warnings but it's a very interesting society and it encompasses a lot of what you've already discussed um, the second thing is the 13 million people that are below the poverty line so I grew up in Dagenham which is a very poor area of the UK and I think even if you raised the minimum level of income to families there, a lot of people still wouldn't work because there's not a culture of working or of decent leisure time. So people don't work and they don't enjoy their leisure. So there's a poverty of ideas and I wondered what your thoughts were about that. Go ahead, please. Hi, my, uh, my name is Tim Spear. I think I'm maybe a bit unusual. Funnily enough, in the context of this talk, I have something like a life of leisure. I uh, drink cups of coffee and uh, call myself a philosopher. And at the start of the talk, hello, I'm, I'm here. Uh, yeah. Hi. Hi. 
At the start of the talk, you mentioned that if uh, with productivity gains, we could be working 14 hours, but you said people don't part because they want to consume or um, income inequality. But uh, I've gotten... Uh, my guess would be it's just that people like working and um, maybe they'd like a uh, better quality of work, but um, what else are you going to do all day? Watch Big Brother? I mean, it's, uh, most people would rather be doing something productive. Also, I must defend uh, Pret-a-Manger. I went there today and uh, the coffee wasn't bad. And I actually chatted to one of the girls who was serving and she said she was rich and did it because she would rather do that than sit around at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wonder what you think of that. Well, uh, Is that true? Uh, uh, I'm not sure she loved Pret-a-Manger. She'd rather be a, a film star or something. But, you know, uh, it was well, yeah, one, one swallow doesn't make a summer, I don't think. <laughs> uh, you see, you see I, I'm not saying that work should be abolished. Of course people, people get satisfaction out of work. I just think they don't have to work 40 or 50 hours a week. There's no need for them to do that, to earn, earn income that actually would give them. I leave distribution aside and, and, and the Dagenham question, which is a very important one. Um, uh, uh, they could get that now. It's just we don't organize society in that way. It's just I think that as time goes on, as you move through the 21st century, I would have thought that work should no longer be the actual, the center of one's identity and one's time to the extent that it now is. Um, the prêt-à-manger kind of work. Now, if you can think of other work, of paid work, that, um, you know, uh, it becomes very satis so, satis so satisfactory that the income from that work is a relatively minor consideration in your motive for undertaking it, then I would, you know, then I'd say great. Um, uh, and that would be a situation we'd all, we'd all want to be. I think you're a bit pessimistic in thinking that if you didn't have this, um, this uh, constant, um, constant spur to activity, um, which is called paid work, uh, you'll just sit and do nothing all day. That idleness is the alternative to paid work. Um, I'm not sure that I, I... I think that's rating human possibilities too low. I mean, I think it is probably true of many people now, but we're in this civilization, not another kind of civilization. Uh, now, Keynes and Polanyi, um, I was only um, um, bracketing them together in order to make the point that they didn't think of capitalism as a natural system. They thought of markets as natural, but not a market society. Um, and in that sense, they thought of it as an imposed system. But whereas Keynes, and as indeed Marx did, thought of it as an in a stadial sense, whereas Polanyi didn't. I, I think Polanyi was a social democrat, basically, um, as, as I understand it, and, and, and really thought that um, uh, what you could do as an alternative to fascism and the implosion of society is to create a social democratic order. And, and much of that was taking place, I think, in the, in the 40s, 50s, and, and it lasted until the 60s, which was a kind of golden age for a middle way between, um, you know, capitalism red in tooth and claw and, and, and communism um, and, and we've lost that red in tooth and claw what? red in tooth and claw, red in tooth and claw yeah. um, then the last point about Cuba 
Um, I, I, visit, I visited Cuba, and there are lots of interesting things about Cuba. Um, uh, one of the things is that there, there are no shops. Uh, and that's sort of almost inconceivable. Of course, there are, there are some state shops. And you, 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 know, you, get your, you get your allocated goods from them. It's loosening up, but broadly that was true. The first thing you notice in driving into Havana is that where are the shops? It's not a shopping society. On the other hand, it's and on the other hand, it's a society where no one goes hungry. There's no obesity, and that's not because people are starving. Um, there is enough. Um, there's very, very good a stand of education, there's, and people are very, very healthy. Now, the trouble is there's no political liberty. And it seems that we cannot get a, a socialized economy without um, some sort of uh, unacceptable level of political control. And that's the dilemma. Uh, if we, if the elements of Cuba, I think, are wonderful, and, and no one, no one really um, uh, um, should should think that the Cuba of Batista, which was run by the mafia, was 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 superior to the Cuba Castro. I think it would be a good argument. It would be a good thing to discuss. But that was a corrupt, degraded, um, appalling um, society. Um, and you didn't, maybe you didn't have to go all the way you know, to the other extreme. Um, on, the, on, the, on the issue of um, Dagenham, you talked about, and, and, and the fact that there was poverty, both the poverty of work and poverty of leisure, I think there are just these huge pockets of social problems which all one can say is, there's no, 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 no way of dealing with them within the confines of our particular broader vision. They, are, they have to be dealt with by all kinds of measures together. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what, what, what you'll do. But, but generally, generally speaking, generally speaking, if there's full employment, those problems reduce. They reduce. They don't, they're not eliminated. You still then get... The, the basic problems are there. They remain all the way through. But the, the worst way of trying to deal with them is to have a society in which there is a huge amount of structural unemployment, in which, uh, you know, in which most, many, many, maybe 50% of young people can't look forward to a job of any kind, and where you have to fill jobs more and more by people from abroad. Um, that's the worst context for trying to deal with, with the Dagenham problem. Um, before uh, closing, I want to say that Lord Skidowski will be available to sign copies of his book, and I want to get instructions on how that will be organized up here. Okay, so should people queue on this side? Or should uh, I go down uh, there? Okay, so if you stay here, and then can people queue on this side and then come over. Okay, so if you, if you are interested in getting books signed, the books are signed. if I sit here alone. <laughs> you won't be alone. You won't be alone for very long. Um, I, I want to thank all of you for attending and for the very uh, interesting uh, and provocative range of questions, and I hope you'll join me in thanking our speakers. Uh, let's get out.